Hi, this is Kevin Barrett. You may have heard that I got booted off of Patreon, but now I'm at the free speech alternative, Substack. Please subscribe to me at Substack. You can find the link to subscribe by way of truthjihad.com. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth, no matter how painful. And uh, I like to find people who have something important to say, even better if they're uncommonly eloquent, um, maybe even poetic. And that's true for today's guest, Edward Curtin. He is a pretty brilliant guy, one of the very best writers on the internet, in my opinion. He's got an education in theology, classics, literature, and other humanities-related fields, and among the many wonderful things he's written is a piece called The Satanic Nature of the Atomic Bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, published a couple of years ago, I guess three years ago now, and we're in that season again, the anniversary season of the atomic bombings, and so it's a good time, I guess, to remind ourselves about this evil when we're being uh, pushed at by forces of evil even today. Um, but th- this was, a, a, it really opened up a, a new era. And so let's talk about it. Welcome, Edward Curtin. How are you, Ed? I'm good, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, it's good, for good to have you back. You opened your essay on Hiroshima and Nagasaki by citing Melville's Moby Dick with uh, Captain Ahab in his pursuit of the white whale. Now, what's the connection there with uh, with Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, I think uh, Moby Dick is a uh, a truly American tale of obsession, and it it kind of resonates backward and forward down through the years to uh, clarify the American obsession. Uh, with uh, uh, killing uh, others uh, who 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 are different, and uh, Captain Ahab uh, becomes so obsessed with it that in the end, of course, uh, he, in this pursuit and for vengeance, uh, dies himself and. It's it's a, a tale of obsession, and I think the United States history is a very sad and and demonic one in terms of trying to kill others at home and abroad, starting with the native peoples. I mean, back back when the the first you know settlers came to this country, it was it's estimated there were about 10 million native uh, peoples living in what is the United States now. And by 1880, it was estimated that there were um, approximately, as I recall, like 225,000. So they had all been exterminated in one way or another through disease that the Europeans brought, through violence, through the 
spread westward manifest destiny. And, and Melville captured this uh, in the story of, of the whale and, and Captain Ahab. Right. So the, uh, the, the whale is seen as demonic by Ahab and, and the others, I guess. Yeah. But ultimately, it's, it's Ahab himself who kind of becomes demonic. It reminds us of that Nietzsche quote about whoever fights monsters should be careful not to become a monster. And if you, you know, if you gaze too long into the abyss, it will gaze at you. Uh, yes. So do you think the American kind of self-righteousness, uh, and, you know, I remember in Falk, Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, there was that innocence of, of the, the main character who kind of sets up the foundational Southern American dynasty. And, uh, you think that that kind of innocence and assuming that we're the good guys and the other guy, that white whale over there, or those Japanese people or whatever, they're the demons is what really ultimately makes us demonic. Uh, yes, I, I, I do. And it goes back to the, you know, uh, you're, you're trained in religion, as am I. Uh, and it goes back to this theological belief uh, that this country, the United States, was God's chosen nation and that Americans are God's chosen people. And we have this God-given uh, <clears throat> right to 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 spread our beliefs and ideas across the country and across the world, and it 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 has become demonic. One look at American history for 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 many many years, culminating in a way with the bombing, the nuclear bombing or atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But there's, there's so much that preceded that for centuries. I mean, just months before the bombings of uh, uh, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, the U.S. Uh, Air Force uh, firebombed approximately 25 Japanese cities and uh, killed hundreds of thousands of Japanese purposely. Uh, they firebombed Tokyo in March, and for over six months, they 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 firebombed almost every Japanese city except six, I believe, and and those were were kept in a bay, and so they could nuke them at a later date. And this is really unbelievable history. It's not to say that the Japanese didn't do uh, evil things themselves, uh, especially against the Chinese and against prisoners of war and so forth. But uh, th this was really unprecedented. Uh, it, w it was a Holocaust, really. Um, and, you know, it, it reverberates down through the years. People still dying from these, these bombings and the, the atomic bombings. And there was no need for it. There was no need. Well, and let's talk about that aspect of it, because... In the airbrushed official history, we're told that these atomic bombings saved uh, huge numbers of lives. I don't remember the precise numbers that were given. I think that were just made up off the, the top of the, of the off the cuff, just to to provide an excuse for these bombings. But uh, maybe you could go over that. What what was the real purpose of these bombings, uh, and and then how did this myth get formulated? Well, 
like all myths, it, it, it became part of a storytelling narrative, which is something we, we, we should talk about in a few minutes. But uh, the, these firebombings were, were led by the notorious uh, General Curtis LeMay, and then the uh, the bombings of uh, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, uh, the Japanese were more than willing to um, to surrender, but the United States uh, didn't really want them to surrender before we bombed. Uh, we we used the atomic bombs. Uh, I don't have the the quote in front of me, but I know that. Secretary of State uh, Byrne, Burns, I believe his name is, uh, told Truman that look, we 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 need to use these these bombs, and um, we need to send a message. And and who who was who was the receivers of the message? Uh, it was uh, the Soviet Union. So uh, in uh, and then of course, Japan, uh, the Soviet Union invaded Manchuria and uh, the Japanese, you know, they were going to they were going to surrender. But we didn't we wanted to use the bombs first. And we did. And we knew how many people we would kill, more or less. And this is the demonic part of it, to kill hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. Why? Why? To save American troops from invading Japan? No, we wouldn't have to invade Japan. Uh, Japan was going to surrender. But a, a false narrative was created uh, and made the Japanese in, into the all evil ones. And we were the good ones. And it was atrocious, just atrocious. Well, it, it seems that the the, the U.S., position here was that the need for so-called unconditional surrender was used in a kind of duplicitous way where the the real issue for the Japanese was they were ready to surrender and had been for some time as long as they got to keep their emperor in some form of U.S. occupied uh, constitutional monarchy. So they, they didn't, you know, want to have the emperor publicly humiliated and demoted or, or removed as emperor. And that was it. Other than that, uh, any conditions are fine. So the U.S. used sort of ambiguity around this to say, oh, yeah. that's not good enough for us. You know, we want truly unconditional surrender. And that's why we're going to keep bombing you. And, and that was used as the excuse to, uh, to drop these atomic bombs, even after the Japanese were fully ready to surrender, you know, in, in with, with that condition of, of keeping the emperor, not humiliating the emperor. And then after the atomic bombings, uh, the Japanese didn't surrender. The, actually, the atomic bombings had nothing to do with the Japanese surrendering. The reason that they surrendered to the U.S. was that the Russians in, were coming, and the Russians were about to get Hokkaido. And so the Japanese exactly. chose to surrender precisely just to keep the Russians out. And, had, and so the bombs were totally useless, except, as you said, to send a message to the Russians. And so this is all but, – but then and then the lies had to be invented about it to sell this to the American people. And we see this pattern over and over, don't we, where there's a real geopolitical game being played that's just purely evil being played by demons in human form. And then they make up some uh, some lie, a comforting lie for the masses who usually accept it. 
Yeah, well, that's that's the way it's always worked. Um, uh, you know, being uh, an American, my focus is on American uh, foreign policy and, and history. And so I speak from within the United States. It's not that that peoples in other country are not or governments, I should say, don't do evil things. Of course, they do. But we have such an extensive history of of slaughtering people that it it just really boggles the mind. And 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 the way they get away with it is by creating these these narratives or myths or stories uh, and projecting onto other countries and other people all evil. They are they are Satan. They are the evil ones, and we're the good ones. And they do it. And to me, this is 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 really key. They create these narratives by using symbols. Uh, I I don't know if listeners realize that the way you tell these these major mythic stories is by using symbols, God's chosen people, the American flag, the eagle, and, you know, the star-spangled banner and all this kind of stuff. And then you you tell a tale of the good versus the bad. And who are the bad ones? I, I used to ask my students, okay, what is the opposite of symbolic? So we know how symbols work. They're very powerful, very powerful symbols. And the word symbol means to throw together. So a symbol used by the in-group brings the in-group together. So the American flag, the, the eagle, etc. So it brings Americans together if you use symbols and tell a narrative that encompasses these symbols. But you need to have, in order to bring people together, the in-group, or the nation, you need the bad people somewhere, whether internally in the country or overseas. And so I asked the students, I used to ask them, well, what's the opposite of symbolic? And no one ever knew. And it's diabolic. And so you have to have El Diablo on the other side. You have to have the devil you have to have Satan, and the others become Satan, and then you weave the story, the good guys versus the bad guys, the diabolical ones, the holy ones, and people go for this because people love stories, and this is, this is mythic. This is mythic. This is the, the American story. Well, well, the people whose business it is to create and maintain public myths – People like Philip Zelico, the novelist who behind the 9-11 Commission report, uh, you know, those people seem like they're, they're actually pretty conscious about this. Leo Strauss, who is the founder of the neoconservative political philosophy that informs people like Zelico, famously loved cowboy movies. And he liked the really cheesy B-grade ones where the bad guys wear black hats and the good guys wear white hats. And he said, yeah. that's what you have to do. You know, when you create a public myth, you have to make it so insanely obvious that it's really cheesy. You know, you have to put the white hat on, on one side and the black hat on the other side. But you know, we certainly see this happening with World War II, don't we? Where 
During the war itself, the Japanese were demonized as racially inferior, crazy kamikaze pilots, you know, sort of like that motif would be taken up and applied to Muslims after 9-11, of course. So there was this racist hatred of Japanese that was way beyond any comparable hatred of Germans during the war itself. But then gradually after the war, a new demonic or you know narrative emerged demonizing the Germans and Hitler far more even than they had been, at least in the U.S., during the war. And then the concept of uh, Holocaust, which literally means a burnt offering or a fiery sacrifice, which perfectly describes what the Allies had done, not only with the fire bombings and the nuclear bombings in Japan, but the fire bombings in Dresden and so many other German cities as well. The Allies had intentionally incinerated huge numbers of civilians in these cities, and then this this mythic symbol of, of Holocaust was taken and applied to the side that actually hadn't been doing that in a totally different context that makes no sense. We're told it was it was hydrogen cyanide gas, uh, which what does that have to do with a fiery sacrifice? Um, well, I guess because they the, the official story is that they they buried millions of corpses in soggy, marshy ground. And then to hide their crimes later, they dug up all of those millions of corpses and burned them using far more fuel than would have ever been available. So uh, what, what, what is your take on the, the, the way that World War II history has, has shifted uh, and that you know, our, our story has now gone from demonizing uh, racially inferior Japanese to demonizing uh, the, the Holocaust perpetrating Nazis? Well, uh, I probably don't agree with you uh, on what you just said, um, because I, I do believe that there was a Holocaust in, in Germany. Uh, uh, the numbers, of course, are debatable. Meaning, meaning mass murders of, uh, of civilians uh, based on ethnic lines. I, I would agree with that. Yes, absolutely. Um, mass extermination of Jewish people and others. Uh, um, but uh, the... the it, the, the crazy part is, and and I think that that was, you know, uh, so horrendous that, you know, it's hard to to imagine. Uh, however, uh, the people who perpetrated those crimes against Jewish people and others, uh, and killed so many. Uh, were taken into the United States to run our programs by uh, Alan Dulles and his boys. And uh, so the ironic thing is we, we brought all these uh, ex-Nazis who were responsible for the killing of Jews and other people, we brought them into the United States to work our programs and to help us uh, then exterminate other people and kill people, to run our space program. To, to help us uh, uh, overturn governments in, in Iran, Guatemala, uh, all over the world to assassinate people. Th these are ex-Nazis who, who were, you know, brought here by the United States government. Uh, so it, it, it's weird how the, the, the narratives just get really twisted. And then, then you know, Hitler is, is the exclusive bad guy but we're just the good guys, but we're using Hitler's henchmen to accomplish our evil deeds. It's just amazing. It's amazing. I'm completely cynical. And, and, and just to, to make it clear, I'm, I'm not saying that there was no mass murder 
against uh, Jews in Nazi-occupied Europe. I think there there were a lot of mass murders, but I think that that story has uh, likely been considerably exaggerated in terms of numbers and 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 that uh, various details of it are probably mythological. But uh, but the the basic picture of the Nazis being an extremely racist regime that did uh, mass murder large numbers of people based on ethnicity, including Jews and gypsies, as well as political opponents and so on, and committed a lot of atrocities. Absolutely, that's true. I'm not convinced, however, that the German atrocities were uh, qualitatively any or even quantitatively worse than the Allied, the Russian, or the Japanese atrocities. Uh, it looks to me like that war was one big atrocity. Well, it it, it, it sure was. Yeah, you know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Norman Finkelstein and his work uh, 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 on on the Holocaust. I believe his parents were were victims of it in in Germany, and so there's a lot of debate about the exact numbers and so on and so forth, and how the legacy was used subsequently by the various Israeli governments um, uh, over the years. And so there's there's a lot of debate, but I just, you know, I feel like I have to make it clear that I I do believe that there was, use whatever term you want, um, a mass killing of uh, of Jews and others by the German government. I do too, but I, I resent the fact that people force me to to say it in their way, and and people oh yeah yeah and people who've done really good historical work like David Irving, who never uh, denied such a thing, have been imprisoned on the totally spurious basis of Holocaust denial on, on the basis of total, utter nonsense written by subpar uh, fake scholars like Deborah Lipstadt. You know, the more you study that issue, the more you realize that, yeah, it's there, there are these crazy racist people who uh, latch onto the story in the wrong way. And and uh, there is such a thing as people who actually deny the facts about this in a, in a kind of offensive way. Yeah, sure, I'll admit that. But uh, it's it looks to me like it's you know the the other side is even more effect, offensive. The fact that we have you know just this is drummed into us all the time with vast sums of money being spent all over the world to build these gigantic Holocaust museums and monuments, all geared towards demonizing Hitler, rather than all these other Holocausts. You know, the British, for example, are building a huge Holocaust monument in London right now uh, to the tune of, I forget how many um, dozens of millions of pounds. And the British are the world's worst Holocaust perpetrators by a considerable margin. You know, they, they killed uh, somewhere between five and six million Irish deliberately by ex stealing their food in the latter part of the 1840s. They deliberately murdered four million plus Bengalis during World War II by deliberately starving them to death, stealing their food. And that's, you know, just the, <laughs> there, are, there are many more examples as well. So I, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I find that the official Holocaust narrative is used to, paint a white hat on the people who are wearing probably the blackest hats on earth. Well, uh, that's, that's often true. I mean, the Palestinian issue, uh, is, is a perfect example, uh, how the Israeli government, um, has, uh, imprisoned in this little strip of land and subjugated and killed Palestinians for, for decades upon decades. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I surely agree with that. I surely agree with you about the British. 
the British Empire, the British subjugation of Ireland and, and, and peoples throughout the world. They are evil in the extreme, evil in the extreme. Uh, yeah. I and, mean, and, and so how does how does literature help us understand this? We talked about Moby Dick before. And in, in your essay on Hiroshima, you mentioned uh, Melville's confidence man as well. And, and yeah. compared him to Trump. I, I, I thought that was pretty apt. You're not the only person who's seen that parallel. So maybe you could flesh that out for us. Well, uh, again, my take on Trump is very different from a lot of people's. Uh, I don't know if we, we've ever talked about this, um, if we talked about it the last time uh, we, we chatted here. Uh, but uh, a confidence man is is uh, is is an actor, is a performer, is a con man, and uh, Trump surely w was a con man. But so are uh, almost every American president that we've had. Uh, I, I would make an exception, but um, uh, but so uh, f for me, Trump. Most people think Trump was an aberration. They think uh, he got elected. It was luck. Uh, Clinton should have gotten in, Hillary Clinton, and so on and so forth. And then for four years, he was cast as the, the, the evil one, the bad guy, and so on and so forth. But I, I don't think Trump was um, an accident. I think Trump is the flip side of the narrative. So if you're going to tell a good story and keep people engaged, you need to have the bad guy and the good guy. You need to have El Diablo, and then you have to have the godlike people on the other side. And Trump, as a confidence man, played his role perfectly well. He's a performer. For four years, he was performing, and everyone ate it up. And they thought that he was the enemy, the arch enemy of Hillary Clinton and the arch enemy of Biden. Almost everyone still thinks this is the case, but I don't. I, I think that, that Trump was part of the game. And it's like two actors are chosen for the big movie. The big movie stretches not over just four years, but even more. And you have to have the black hat and the white hat, and you just play the game, and they're performers. Is it a professional wrestling metaphor here, maybe? Well, sure. It, well, yeah, I mean, that's... Is it, <laughs> I mean, Trump is classic. He could, Trump could go into the ring and, you know, be, like, get body slamming Hillary and stuff. I mean, that's almost what it seemed to come down to. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, there. you know, I have friends who are um, uh, playwrights and in the theater, and I think it's 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 the theater is the way to explain this. That this is a a play, a movie, life the movie, a play. It, it's Shakespearean, uh, but you know a lot of people who I agree with on so many issues think that's kind of a kooky idea to think that Trump is part of the setup. But well, then why, why did the media give him so much free publicity in such a way that it helped him if they really hated him? They, the, the, the type of bad publicity they gave him was perfect for helping him win. Excellent point. Excellent point. 
Why did they do that? Uh, but but I'm sure you'll agree there there aren't too many people who who think that Trump is an ally of Biden, Obama, Hillary Clinton, because they're all part of this package deal that is created. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm one of those few people who agree with you on this, Ed. I guess oh, we're, nice. we're, we're the ultra paranoid conspiracy theorists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe we're wrong, but I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. No, I, I, I think elements of the oligarchy wanted Trump in in 2016, and then they were outvoted by other elements, or maybe they just changed their mind and they already squeezed everything out of them they could get, and so they wanted to to put to send him out in 2020. And now whether yeah. he, yeah, whether yeah. he was totally on board with all of that, I don't know. <laughs> right, that's how I read it. Um, I think that if they really wanted him out. Contrary to, you know, impeachment and all that other nonsense that went on, Trump wouldn't have lasted six months. One way or the other, they would have gotten rid of him. He sure as hell wouldn't have lasted four years. And I'm not saying, uh, uh, you know, they, they would have assassinated him. I'm not saying that. There are many ways to get a president out of office. Many, many ways. You know, they've done it to others, and I'm not speaking about President Kennedy, who was assassinated to get him out. Uh, I'm talking about others like Nixon, for example. If they want you gone, you're gone when you've served your purpose. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of, of the way that this uh, good guy, bad guy myth uh, gets created, uh, mm -hmm. it, it seems that in wartime, it's the external enemy that gets demonized, and then the people are rallied to uh, to go off and, and fight that demon or to go chase the white whale or what have you. And But now we're seeing a strange situation in which, on the one hand, we have what we would expect to be uh, a World War III starting as the U.S. bankster empire or the, whatever you want to call it, the, you know, the Euro-American or Zio-American uh, empire uh, goes after the rising somewhat independent power of China, tries to keep itself in control. You know, so, so historically at this juncture, we would expect these uh, psychopaths who run Western foreign policy to be rallying the people for a war with Russia and China. And we see some indications that that could be the case. However, when we look at the, the biggest, uh, most energetic sort of white hats versus bad hat, black hats action that's going on, it's almost the domestic stuff where the, the evil anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorists who must be erased from the internet are on one side and they're the, they're the ultimate evil, the white whale that must be vanquished for the mainstream news consumers. But then on the other side, the uh, the Trump lovers, the Fox News watchers, the Breitbart readers, and a lot of the alternative news people, people see it the other way around. And they see this incredibly evil uh, conspiracy coming after them. So they think that the liberals and the left and the Democrats and the communists and the Chinese and all of this are, are all part of one big satanic evil plot. And so it seems like there's this polarization right now domestically in the U.S. and in the West and I, I'm trying to figure out how that relates with the kind of 
uh, demonization of China and Russia and Iran that's going to be necessary if they're going to wage their World War III in any other way than this deniable bio war that they may already be doing. What do you think of that? Well, <laughs> I think that uh, it's very, very true. Uh, externally, you have uh, the enemies, uh, Russia and China, and uh, the, the pressure has, has always been put on those two countries by U.S. foreign policy. And, uh, you know, it, it waxes and wanes uh, through different administrations. And it's very, very intense and moving in a, in a frightening direction now. So that's, that's one theater piece. And you're right. The other is internal into the United States, where, again, you have the good people and the bad people. And uh, this works very, very well. So, uh, uh, you know, the war is now a war against domestic terrorists. And who are the domestic terrorists? Uh, for the most part, and the censorship is, is focused on anyone who objects to the COVID narrative and to this uh, effort to force vaccination on, on everyone. And they're the bad people. And every day you can see in the headlines, you know, the bad people, look what they're doing to the good people. And now the poor good people, and you know, back and forth and back and forth, the good guys, the bad guys. And it's, uh, I don't know where it will all end up, but I think that that story, diabolic, symbolic, is, is working externally and internally. And it's just, it's an ancient thing. It's an ancient tale. Yeah, and, and when I try to, connect the dots and figure out how could this internal uh, diabolic symbolic uh, divide be related to the external one. Yeah. It occurs to me, you know, looking back at nine 11, which I think was an attempt to fully get past Vietnam syndrome. You know, the, the, the rulers I think were traumatized by their public relations problems in selling the Vietnam war, which turned into such a catastrophe. So, I think, you know, they did the Gulf War partly to overcome Vietnam syndrome, and then they did 9-11 to try to fully overcome it. You know, they needed to rally people behind a muscular foreign policy and so on and so forth, get people on the same page. And it worked for a little while. But uh, then what we saw was that Bush, Cheney, and the Republican side fell under suspicion for obvious reasons. And right. their Iraq invasion was not very popular. And 9-11 truth emerged, and pretty soon a lot of folks on the left, which is the natural home for war resistors and peaceniks, were very suspicious of Bush and Cheney, and they were starting to wake up to 9-11 truth. I remember we were getting, you know, 1,000-plus people into movie theaters in Minneapolis to see 9-11 truth films, and it was really building on the left side of the spectrum. So then they, they inserted Obama as this well-spoken liberal black guy who was the anti-Bush. And that put all the left liberal Democrat types back to sleep. And so now they had less of a problem with those people. The left liberal types are the problem you have if you're going to try to wage war. So now looking at today's situation, what I see is that the, uh, the right wing is the home of all the conspiracy theorists and stuff. And the left wing now is back marching in lockstep under orders from the oligarchs 
So actually, they may not be in such a bad position to wage World War III because now they've got the left side under control. The left side is not going to rebel against them if they get into a war with Russia, China, or Iran. Uh, and the right isn't either because the right wing is the natural home of uh, chauvinists and, and nationalists. Now, the right wing is already screaming and yelling that it was the Chinese, the CCP, that gave us COVID. And so they've neutralized the left, which is the potential pro-peace resistance, and the right is never a problem. The minute they go official and say, yeah, China gave us COVID, let's go fight them, the right will start beating their chests and yelling and, and volunteering. So I think that might be how they've engineered it and why they've engineered that particular split domestically. Yeah. Well, if you go back to, to the early days, Kevin, the early days of the CIA, they they decided, um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. He was a famous CIA guy in the 50s. They, they, they knew that they had the right wing in their pocket, but they needed to uh, recruit liberals and people on the left. And so they, they, they started a massive campaign to, 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 to get liberals to join the CIA and to, to, to work with them in this anti-communist crusade. And they were very, very successful in, in the, the term they used was courting, courting the left like it was a romance. <laughs> and uh, they, they, they brought a, a lot of left-wing people into the CIA. And uh, on a larger scale today, that's exactly what, what has happened. Liberal and left-wing people have have bought into this 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 scenario, and uh, they they got them in their pocket right now. I mean, I I remember Obama in 2014. He gave a speech at West Point, and he said um, something like, "I I believe in American exceptionalism with every fiber of my being," and I thought, "Oh my God, here is a, a black man." saying this. He believes in American exceptionalism. Exceptionalism? Well, what about slavery? What about the extermination of native peoples uh, and, and so forth? How in God's name could you utter those words seriously? Well, my black friends all say Obama is a classic Oreo cookie. You know. <laughs> well, I, I, for sure. I, I, I agree. That's that, you know, I mean, I agree. I don't, I'm not exactly sure what what they mean by that. Well, it's it's but, black on the outside and white on the inside. Yeah, well, I mean, this this quote seems to support that, doesn't it? I mean, he, you know, he he sure made, you know, he 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 made sure to 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 destroy Libya. Libya is not exactly, you know, a, a, a white white country. Uh, he, you know, he made, well, he, I think enough said. I think you, you, you get my Yeah, point. enough about Obama. We agree completely about that. You know, you're mentioning the, the liberal left people that they invited into CIA. And probably the most important, at least that I know about, was Cord Meyer, you know, Mary Meyer's husband. Mary Meyer later, oh, yeah. you know, she divorced Cord. You know, they were both left-wing peaceniks. Cord Meyer was maybe the world's leading peacenik. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then Mary Meyer, of course, gets uh, uh, murdered herself 
Right. For, but she was going to expose what happened to her boyfriend, JFK. And, uh, and, and there is some indication that Cord Meyer was very likely involved in killing JFK, which would, uh, be a whole new conspiracy theory. The, uh, the jealous husband in the CIA, uh, killed the president, but that, that actually, uh, Howard Hunt said that that was one factor in it or was a way they were able to get, uh, that Cord Meyer to, to go all in on it. But that's, it's, it's interesting though that somebody like Cord Meyer, who is so, uh, idealistic and so such a peacenik, you know, he'd been injured in World War II. Uh, mm. he was a peacenik even before World War II, but for some reason he joined and, and was badly injured and disillusioned and became uh, a very effective and energetic peace activist. And then somehow in the early fifties, he, he flipped and, uh, Alan Dulles recruited him to the CIA and then he became a, an abusive alcoholic. I'm, I'm trying to right. imagine like what happened? Uh, it's like a classic example of the devil, you know, getting back to the demonic is did, did the devil uh, get Cord Meyer to like sign on the dotted line or something in blood? I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. I mean, I know the story and you're right. He was liberal and all of that. And Mary, Mary um, got, you know, I'm sure she tried to make a lot of distance between her and him eventually. Which she did, but they, it, you know, her, I mean, she was not killed by the guy who they claim killed her. That that is quite evident. Yeah, P- Peter Peter some, Janney's book on that is is terrific. It's a highly recommended. Yeah, well, he claims his father was 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 part of the uh, the uh, killing of Mary Meyer. Yeah, yeah. In that book. Right. Yeah, I had him on the show several years ago after that book came out. And, and you know, these, these kinds of cases really do illustrate the uh, extremely demonic nature of our leadership. And I wonder, how do we get out of this cycle? Maybe your religious studies background can help me with this. Um, but, you know, living in a society in which you've got to- totally demonic leaders doing hideous things and then selling a public myth in which they put the white hat on themselves and the black hat on whoever they feel like victimizing. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a, a perpetual nightmare. And, you know, what are, what are the ways that we could possibly get out of it or awaken from it? Well, it's, it's, it's extremely hard. Um, I think by trying to, trying to, to tell people the truth about our history is, is one key thing that we can do. Uh, for example, you, you know David Ray Griffin and all his work on 9-11, or on September 11th, I call it. Uh, David wrote another book called The American Trajectory, with with a subtitle, Divine or Demonic, by the way. And, um, and, and the correct answer is demonic. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but until until people recognize some of this history, uh, for example, I, I, I know it, it happened so long ago, but until the American people accept the fact that President Kennedy, Malcolm X, MLK, Robert Kennedy were killed by, by, by their own governments, it, 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 until they, they look at 9-11 and, and try to grasp the truth of 9-11. So there are all these things that have happened down through the years. 
and you try to educate people and you say, look, you got to look at this. I know it happened long, long ago, but it's, it's still alive. We're still living it. Don't you see? So I think we, we can do that. I mean, that's what you do. That's what I try to do. That's what David Ray Griffin does. That's what Jim Douglas, who's written the wonderful book on the JFK assassination. And I don't know what else we can do. We speak the truth as we know it. You know, we're not perfect. We're wrong on certain things, I'm sure. But uh, do what you're doing. Uh, dialoguing with people on your radio show. Dialogue so important. Trying to reach people, not people who agree with us, but people who don't. Uh, just to, to tell a different story. That's something that rather obsesses me. Uh, I recently wrote a little piece, a little essay um, uh, called Putting America Behind Our... What, what was the title? Trying to Put All America Behind, which which comes from uh, David Henry Thoreau. So I was on, on Cape Cod on the National Seashore looking out at the ocean and... It, the same spot where Thoreau walked from Provincetown to to um, Orleans down the whole beach, right? And I was thinking, how do you? I, I was tired of all this, you know, the stuff we're talking about. I, I just needed a break, but I couldn't. I, I kept thinking; these thoughts popped into my head, and one of the thoughts that popped into my head was that. Uh, Right behind me, across the bay, was Boston, and Boston was was the people who built Boston to make it this famous city were were people names like Forbes and Cabot and Weld and Perkins and and um, Delano, the grandfather of FDR. These people all made their money in the opium trade. They built Harvard. They built Boston out of profits from the massive killing of Chinese people through opium in the in the 1800s. And someone needs to tell that story. People need to know it. I mean, in this little essay, I just mentioned it, but this this is this is part of our history. So you, if you you've heard the names Cabot, Cabot Lodge, Forbes, Forbes magazine. Uh, we need to retell tell the history and somehow get people to, to, to understand it. It's it's tough. It's it's tough. Yeah, well, we're we're under the rule of, of psychopaths and their organized crime syndicates is, is really kind of the bottom line. And I, when I try to imagine a way out of it, I can imagine sort of a, a political attempt, which would be something along the lines of uh, a. Uh, a war on the oligarchs. You know, I, I uh, had Modi Nasadi on the show recently talking about that. He, he thinks a direct revolutionary war against oligarchs and their representatives might work. And then the other possibility, and, and of course we, we may, might end up with chaos and civil war and something that just brings down the system we have now. And, and who knows what would emerge out of that? Probably more warlords, unfortunately. And, and, and then maybe a slightly more hopeful possibility would be some form of religious awakening and uh, I, I wonder, what are your thoughts on that? You know, because 
uh, you, you are trained in theology. I saw you've, you know, you're, you blurbed a couple of, at least one of David Ray Griffin's theology books. You think that, yeah, you, you think that people actually, uh, coming to a, uh, firmer grounding in, uh, religious experience and understanding could improve people's nature enough to make a difference. You know, the Quran says that God won't change our condition until we change what's inside ourselves. And, and I, often thought, you know, I, I, I thought Islam might be a way to do that, given the, the way that can be transformative in various ways with the rituals and getting people off of alcohol and other stupid uh, diversions. But uh, I, I saw I saw you're a fan of, of David Ray Griffin's theology, which I'm also a bit of a fan of. And, and so what, what, what do you think about the possibility that, that religion can be part of the solution here? I think it I think it has to be. Uh, uh, definitely. I think there has to be a, a spiritual transformation of people's lives at the deepest, deepest levels. And, and this, uh, you know, across, across organized religions, whether it's Islam or, or uh, Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism, are coming together across all of these religions to the spiritual nature of life. Uh, and, and that's another battle that has to be fought because for the last, uh, I mean, if you see the movement today into artificial intelligence, into life online, into all of the technology, it's all a denial of nature. It's, it's, it, but we are natural beings. And I think that, that people have to somehow find not just in their natural surroundings, uh, the spirit that joins people across the globe, uh, because we we really are one human family, and these people just want to divide us with their fake stories and and, and their myths. Buddhist from Buddhist and is is Muslim from from Catholic and so on and so forth. So, with, without a spiritual renewal, uh, I think we're we're absolutely lost. Uh, you know, so yeah, I, I, I think it's essential. Uh, I don't know exactly how to accomplish it. Uh, I don't think that a formal belief systems are the way it's, it's people need to experience this, you know, the living, the living religion or the, or I'll call it spirit, whatever word you want to use. Um, you know, the spirit, because there's a movement to, to affirm and tell people, you know, atheism is the truth. Well, I don't think atheism is the truth. I think atheism is just another another uh, religion. Uh, people who, who are so damn sure of themselves that, that God or whatever doesn't exist. But uh, And that's been going on for the last 20 years. I see that as part of this movement to, to, to divide people. Uh, so, yeah, I think that we need a spiritual renewal. I'm just not sure how we're going to accomplish it. But without it, I mean, I can't get through a day, Kevin, without my my uh, spiritual connection. I wouldn't do what I do. I wouldn't write any of the stuff I've written. I wouldn't. Have, I would have lived my life completely different, differently, without the spiritual sustenance that keeps me going. Yeah, very beautifully said. Me too. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah. 
Rene Girard has an interesting take on some of this. You know, his his uh, work on scapegoating and human sacrifice is, I think, quite relevant to what we're talking about with the demonic or, or satanic nature of the burnt offering or Holocaust of all the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and also Tokyo and Dresden and so on during World War II. That, you know, his Rene Girard's idea that, you know, we're kind of wired to do what these neocons are specialists in making us do, which is to band together against demonized uh, outsiders or scapegoats and then kill them. Uh, that, that that aspect of what, you know, what he thought was the, the root of kind of both pagan religion and all human group solidarity and, you know, finding a, uh, a, a better way of, uh, of banding together with people through love. I mean, in a way, that's what religion has always taught us. But, exactly. you know, we need to find a way to make that contagious, I guess. <laughs> of course, the word contagious these days could get us banned, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, if, if if I could just say this, um, I know we're probably coming to the end here. Um, the, the, the whole issue with, with uh, this coronavirus stuff is, is, is the fear of death. And the fear of death is immediately tied into, into uh, the history of religions, the history of spirituality, and so forth. And, uh, you know, to quote uh, uh, the, the New Testament, you know, perfect love casts out fear. And uh, the love for, for fellow human beings uh, on this earth and uh, fearlessness in the face of death. We we need to develop uh, some courage, you know, from the heart that we are not going to be afraid that you know they they can kill us if they want. Uh, but you know this is the fight's going to go on. The human spirit is is immortal, and we, we're going to to keep fighting against this. But the fear, the fear is just terrible. People are so afraid all the time. And somehow we, we have to tell stories and encourage each other not to be afraid. Okay, well, that's a great place to leave it. Uh, and, and I think you're doing some of that with your terrific work. So thank you so much, uh, Edward Curtin. It's always wonderful talking with you and just about equally wonderful reading your stuff. You're one of the very best writers on the Internet today. So please uh, keep going. Okay, Kevin, you too. Thanks very much. Okay. Uh, Take care. It's, it's wonderful always talking to you. Yep. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you.